You're listening to Never Sleeps Network. This episode of Speech Bubble is sponsored by Harry Tarantula, where not only can you get your comics, your magic cards, and all the stuff that geeks like you will love, but now that accessible washroom is finally complete. This hits home for me, you guys. I'm a guy who uses a mobility scooter. I know how hard it is sometimes to have washrooms accessible in Toronto. So I'm really proud of Leon for putting his money where his mouth is, completing that accessible washroom, and making equal access for everyone. So go on down to 3456 Young Street, Harry Tarantula, and tell them Aaron sent you. Hey, fan people. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know I'm always talking about the connection between comics and coffee. It's because I love coffee. I do my French press every morning. I do the pour over. That's why we've teamed with the superheroes at BAM Coffee, bamcoffee.ca. Their roaster, Aaron, is Canadian. He's from Saskatchewan, and he's a geek like us. That's why he's putting his clean, ethically sourced coffee in something called a BAM box. He's combining coffee with the geek swag that I know our listeners are going to love. That's 700 grams or 350 grams of coffee with art prints by local Canadian comic artists, a limited edition mug. I mean, what more could you ask for? If you want to try it, he's giving a special promo code to Speech Bubble listeners, SB15. So go to bamcoffee.ca, type in SB15 at checkout, and get 15% off your first BAM box. Hey, maybe you want to just try the coffee. That's okay too. He'll send you 150 grams of coffee, and all you gotta pay for is the shipping. I mean, that's a pretty amazing deal. So go to bamcoffee.ca and tell Aaron that Aaron sent you. You're listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. Here's your host, Aaron Broverman. Godspeed, old chum. Hey, fan people. Welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble. I am your host, Aaron Broverman. Uh, You found us on Never Sleeps Network at neversleepsnetwork.com. Don't forget to uh, rate and review our show so that other people can find us on podcast providers such as Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast needs met. With me today, we are on location in Mississauga, and we have Adam Gorham. Adam Gorham is a comic artist. His latest book is punk mambo from valiant uh, that's coming back coming out in trade paperback it's uh, in stores now um also you might remember his work on the violent with ed brisson uh he did the solo rocket raccoon book rocket it was sort of a heist book starring rocket raccoon from guardians of the galaxy uh he's done various covers for Uh, Jughead the Hunger, where Jughead from Archie is a werewolf. Uh, He did a story called Metalhead 2.0 in uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Universe. 
Uh, he's worked on a book for Valiant called Dead Drop. Uh, he did a one-shot story in Acts of Evil, where you you know basically pair unlikely Marvel villains with uh, unlikelier heroes. And uh, he did a he did a Punisher story for that. Uh, that's coming out in trade paperback in 2020. Uh, please welcome Adam Gorham. Hi. Hey, it's good to have you. We've been trying to have you in for a long time. Uh, so it's good to finally be able to have this conversation. Yeah. All it took was coming out to Mississauga. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. Glad we could be on your home turf, uh, which is a good lead into uh, my question. Um, where were you born? What was your early life like? Are you from here originally? I was born in a town called Perth. It's maybe five hours from here going towards Ottawa. And I lived there till I was about two. Um, then my father found work out here in Mississauga and I've lived here ever since. Oh, cool. Awesome. So like part of your childhood and teenage years were spent out in Mississauga? Yeah. I mean like virtually my entire life's been here. That's I, awesome. Yeah. Like I've lived in different parts of Mississauga. But, um, yeah, I was, I mean, not born here, but pretty much raised here and started a family here. Nice. So tell us about, um, what was your early life like? Like, what did your parents do? Uh, do you have any brothers or sisters? That sort of thing. Sure, sure. Um, I have one younger sister. Her name's Allison. Uh, she's, she works in law downtown Toronto. Um, she's super cool, very smart, um, What's the age difference between you two? I'm two years older. Nice. Two years older, but she was a grade behind me, and I've never figured out whether or not I was like secretly held back a grade or what. Um, but was she just smarter than you? I think it's <laughs> yeah. She could have been. She is very smart, so she could very well have been skipped a grade. But I yeah. think it's really more of a case where she was born in late December and I was born in January. Cool. So um, at any rate. So one younger sister and my father worked for Jurgen Soap Company, um, which was later absorbed by one corporation and then that was later absorbed by another corporation. He's retired now, so I don't know what they were called by the time he retired, but he, you know, for many years worked for Jurgen Soap. Um, and my mother, uh, she worked, you know, she worked a bunch of different jobs, but for the most of my life, she worked in childcare. And so she babysat a lot of, you know, local children um, from home while I was growing up. Um, and uh, she's also now retired. That's really awesome. So what was it like? What was your childhood like? Like, what were your interests? Uh, did you always know that you could draw? Were you always into comics? Yeah, I was always drawing. Um, I, I began drawing from a pretty early age. And I think that um, for many years I was uh, sheltered in, where I live. Like when we, I guess when we moved to Mississauga, it was um, pretty jarring for, like my father growing up lived all over Canada. His father was in the military, so they were stationed all over. So he was pretty well accustomed, I think, to bouncing around. Whereas my mom was, uh, you know, she was a small town girl and coming to Mississauga was a pretty big deal for her and her family. And um, so I think that when she came out here, 
feeling pretty removed from um, from what she knew. And Mississauga, I think, you know, Mississauga is like just suburban sprawl, and it was probably, you know, much smaller, you know, in 1987 uh, than it is now. So, but even to her, like Mississauga was part of the big city. So it was pretty, I think, daunting for her. Um, and we lived in a, like we, we moved into a, a small condominium, like an apartment building that, um, you know, like was what, like it wasn't a terrific scene. So I think, um, I think my mom was like, my parents anyway were a little uh, timid about just having me go outside and play and stuff like that. So I was like pretty sheltered. Um, for many for many years and as a result played with like a lot of action figures drew quite a bit um, and my mom my father uh, you know exposed me to a lot of pop culture stuff you know so like everything that we know and love today Star Wars Indiana Jones Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy um, Batman Spider-Man all those things I um, I was I was uh, you know treated to as a kid so um, I was never in short supply of, 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 of entertainment um, but I often spent my you know if I wasn't in school if I wasn't watching like cartoons or whatever I was uh, playing or drawing in my room that's awesome so what were some of the first things that you that you drew what got you into picking up a pen or pencil and drawing on pieces of paper um you know it's hard to say what got me into it it was just something that um uh i guess i as a kid wanted to either express myself or get things that were you know in my head across on paper and i because i was always i always was um flighty had my head in the clouds and not ever really present in the moment um so because I, I was always daydreaming about stuff so um and then that would lead me to putting all that down on paper um but um i don't know what the driving force behind that is but i i i liked telling stories so i was you know never just drawing like a thing it was always a scene something was happening um you know i was trying to create you know a, a whole world within my little piece of paper um it wasn't until uh, a few years like until i was in my you know like 10 pre-teens that i started to draw from from sight you know so, uh, drawing photographs of people um drawing objects and, and things that i that i saw but before all that it was just you know raw childish imagination on paper what made you continue it into your teenage years like a lot of people find girls or they stop drawing or whatever what what made you continue um well i mean i had i had i had a few years stretches of time where i drew a lot less um but um i i would say that i i would say that i always uh, kept it up because I had an outlet for it. So I mean, like I, in elementary school, um, I drew basically to escape my classroom. Um, you know, like I, I didn't 
I was not a great student. I was always, again, like I said, head in the cloud. And so I was drawing to get out of the moment. And um, But what kept me going in high school was it uh, was art class. And because um, like unlike elementary school, there was no club. I mean, we would have like arts and crafts at some point or you would get to draw a title page for a subject in your duotang. Um, but, you know, there wasn't a lot in elementary school that I found very challenging as far as art went. Um, so in high school, when, you know, they had just art class, um, I, you know, I really uh, flourished um, and I got to learn about, you know, new, uh, new mediums that I hadn't really ever really tried before, you know, like watercolors, oil paints, acrylics. Um, and, uh, you know, that was very exciting for me. So I always looked forward to art class because um, it was pushing me in, in, in new ways, whereas, you know, when I'm just drawing on my own, like I, I'm going to reach for whatever's nearby and I'm going to draw what I know. And um, it wasn't until I got into high school that art became um, I don't know, a bigger world for me. Um, but I, uh, but my certainly what what um, uh, fueled my my interest in art changed because when I was a kid it was a lot of like drawing things from comic books and movies and and, and television because um, I was consuming all of those things and then I stopped reading comic books just um, getting just getting into high school and so for many years in high school I had left them alone and it wasn't like I, it wasn't like I wasn't interested in comics anymore, um, but I wasn't actively buying them. I wasn't actively reading them. And I think for a lot of people like myself, we were, you know, uh, we had loved everything that had come out in the 90s. And that's our, you know, like our, that, that was our foundation. So when we Like were, image and that sort of stuff? Uh, more so Marvel for me. Okay. Um, some image things I think like the only image thing that I had read in the 90s was Spawn okay um, but um, uh, so you know there was like always an appreciation for comic books but I wasn't actively reading things I would kind of keep tabs on things through wizard magazines that I would either come across or or, or get when I had the interest um, but in high school uh, I was still doing art uh, pretty much all the time but it was um, it was more about you know, um, it was more traditional, I guess you could say. Um, although, like, the cartoon, like, you know, the fingerprints of cartoon and comics were all over what I was doing. Um, I was trying to, I was trying to do other things, and whatever the assignments called for, and, um, and whatever I found interesting at the time. Right, right. So it was not just, like, directly copying things from pop culture, but, like, trying to, like, do things a little more realistic and, and yeah. different things. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Awesome. So I wanted to ask you sort of since you, you know, grew up in Mississauga and you did collect comics in, in elementary school, what was the scene like for comics? Like what stores did you go to? What were they like? What originally got you into comics? That sort of thing. Well, I can't say that I was a part of any scene when you know, I was a kid, you know, like I was... Uh, I was born in 85, so in the 90s I was going through, like, you know, you know my, my pre-teens and my, my early teens. Um, 
So I, I, you know, I was buying comics with whatever allowance I managed to save up or if I could convince somebody to buy them for me. And the only store nearby was actually just like a magazine store, like a newsstand in, in a mall. And this was at a point in time, like in that 90s bubble where, you know, comics were a big thing. So places that had maybe carried a few Archies on like a spinneret or something like that had expanded and they were carrying a lot more now. So um, this, uh, this, this particular, um, this particular store that, you know, sold cigarettes, cigars, newspapers, magazines, uh, grew quite the comic section. And, um, and it just like, just, you know, to give a further sign of the times, it was next to an arcade. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, um, but I mean, like it's comic section lasted longer than the arcade did. Uh, and so I, you know, I would go over there and, um, it was called, it was a place called Smokers R&R. I think if memory serves and I would go over there with whatever money I had and if I couldn't buy a comic I would buy a pack of trading cards and if I couldn't buy a pack of trading cards I'd buy some gum that had like spider-man stickers in them right. um, and so you know they I think um, you know 90s comics uh, in, in, in comic related merchandise it was fairly ubiquitous at that time um, so I was always able to find something. I could always, you know, throw a quarter at something to to get, you know, to get my fix. But I wasn't, um, I wasn't buying like a stack like I might today if I went to a comic book shop. I had to figure out how much I had and what one comic I could buy. Um, and so I never. Grew, I grew up never really collecting any one of anything. It was always I, I, the comics that I possessed that I owned were pretty eclectic. Um, and so I never really followed a classic storyline or a classic character. It was always just, it was very mishmash and whatever I could get my hands on. So what kinds of things would attract you on the newsstand? Like the cover or like what kinds of heroes were you, were you into? Um, I was always into X-Men. I would get Batman here and there. I would get, um, you know, some Spider-Man stuff, um, Night Stalkers. Um, uh, you know, I remember uh, saving up for. I remember. I remember once getting uh, an Archie meets the Punisher, um, but it was mainly you know like X Men stuff. Um, but I was terrible for not actually reading the like. I I always looked at the art but I wouldn't always read what was going on. And so I had probably like a really poor understanding of what the overall stories were. Like I remember buying a issue nine of Executioner song and uh, because I hadn't really read anything beforehand and certainly didn't really read the issue, I assumed that because like Wolverine, Beast and Strife because they all had like triangular pointy heads that they were all part of this brotherhood like I thought they were siblings oh. because they all had like the friggin like wings on them like you know like Wolverine's wings uh, Beast's hair at that point came out to points yeah um, and Strife had that ridiculous mask so I thought they were all like brothers um, and then it wasn't like it wasn't until a little later on that I met somebody older like who was collecting comics who was like, oh, Strife is Cable's clone brother or something. He lives on the moon. Um, so I, 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 would, I never really... 
I can't say that I was ever really like part of the scene. Like I would, uh, in fact, a lot of the stuff that I learned was from this one particular guy named um, Mariano, who was the son of my building superintendent. And I forget, I forget his age, but he had a monstrous uh, comic collection, and I loved going over there because he just had long boxes. He had a room full, like a storage room full of long boxes um, that I would kind of flip through and there were things that he wouldn't let me touch but he told me an awful lot about like the, the the current events and comics and so i hung out at his place a lot drawing on envelopes to send a wizard wow that's awesome um did, did any of your uh letter uh letter envelopes get published in wizard yeah one that i know of um and this was it was probably i think it was literally the last envelope that i'd ever that i ever sent and <clears throat> I think it was, you know, towards the end of, of Wizards. I think it was a, I think it came out in 2003 or 2005, the issue that I got in. And um, and I I drew an amalgamation of Wolverine and the Bride from, from Kill Bill. And I sent that in and forgot about it. And I never heard back. Like, they didn't send me a comp copy or anything. There wasn't, I think this was maybe pre-email for me so it's they couldn't send me like a confirmation or anything i just sent it and then kind of forgot that it ever happened and many years later i was in a bmv killing time i was waiting for my partner to get off work and so i was just going through things and i found like a short box of wizards and the first wizard i picked up i opened up and my envelope was in it whoa yeah it was like i was pretty blown away um so I, i got pretty excited about it and I, I still have that, but um, so I don't know if I ever got, you know, letters in there previously. I doubt it, but, um, but yeah, so I, I had got the one. And then I think not long after mine was published, they went like, like they went under. Um, I can't I can't remember. But yeah, it was early, sometime in the mid 2000s. Or, early aughts. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because I remember Obama made the cover. On, on Wizard One. Like, oh, okay. Because Alex Ross did him did a sort of Obama Superman homage. Like instead of the wow, so S that, on his chest, it was like a O. That would so have, been, must have like been right when 2007, he got 2008. Yeah. yeah. So something at some point. Wow. That was around the last I, issues because I, I still have that issue. I thought they were gone before that. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Crazy. But uh, I don't think they lasted till like 2010. But we'll see. Like I've I've been watching cartoonist kayfabe maybe they'll get up to those issues and we'll finally know when yeah. when wizard stopped um has what attracts you to comics like it sounds like in the in your childhood it was mostly about the art but has what is, attracts you to comics and what you like about them changed from then until now oh certainly i mean i you know there's i appreciate more things about comics than i did then um, I guess number one would be storytelling. Um, I, I make comics because I want to tell stories, and um, that's important to me. And, um, and then also, you know, just now that I'm a much better artist, um, I can appreciate a lot more like what goes into comic book art and when, you know, when, when comic art is doing its job very well and um and just i mean you know apart from just the art itself but like everything that goes into making a monthly book um and it's you know it's it's a crazy process and 
you know everybody is working so hard to do it and like you know the average the average book that you might pick up um i think you know just when i consider how much goes into getting that thing on the stands and how much everybody sweats it and how much you know like how much stress and, and heartbreak is involved in making a comic for every individual involved um, it makes me realize that your average comic is so like woefully underappreciated. Right. But um, anyway, so I, I definitely appreciate all those things more that I couldn't possibly have when I was just reading them um, or even just like, you know, looking at them as opposed to reading them. But um, but yeah, I, I just as far as like, you know, going from drawing things to, to making comics, like the whole um storytelling aspect uh is uh, is something that is you know really important to me nice and it's basically like you know you don't even get a full month to produce a monthly book right like it's sometimes not always within like two weeks or i mean i i think yeah i hear stories like that i don't think they happen a lot i mean right. it does happen right um and there's you know there's usually like a reason for that i mean certainly nobody nobody wants to be in the position or put somebody in the position where like a book gets done in within two weeks i think when you know and i i am certain i've been responsible for this too but i think when i think on average the people who have you know the least time to do books are like letterers and colorists right and so like when uh, when a script takes long, that's less time for the artist, and then when the artist takes long, which I know that I have, that's less time for the colorist, and when the colorist has to take long, that's less time for the letterer, and there are ways to streamline it. You know, I've worked on things where it's like, you know, it's been, you know, like, I'm handing in page by page, and it's being colored page by page because it's so close to the wire. Um, I'm never proud of that, but it does happen, and, um, but, um, you know, I think, like, the the tales of somebody like whipping off something within two weeks uh thankfully are not as as common as as you know one might think awesome awesome that's that's really good as a reader i, I appreciate that so after high school what made you want to pursue this as a career and did it start right away like did you know what you wanted to do after high school no i didn't have any idea what i wanted to do like i always wanted I think it was just assumed by myself and my family that I would do something artistic, um, not necessarily comic books. Uh, comic books at that time, it did seem like a pretty uh, far and away thing. Like, although I just saw this, I opened up a, an old box of, of stuff recently, so I came across this, but I did send its submissions to publishers when I was like in grade nine, grade 10 with art. Um, probably like later than that, probably like, you know, and I graduated in 2003, so I think I may have, like, sent a submission to Marvel, um, like, as as late as 2005, 2004, um, and I wanted to find that, because I got a really nice rejection letter from Marvel, um, and I, and that's not me being snarky, it was a very nice, like, hey, you know, thank you for your interest. You know, here are some things. These are the things that you want to focus on. It was uh, very constructive. Right, and you were submitting like pinups and stuff. Or... I no, I was submitting sequential, sequential pages. pages. Okay. Um, so I wasn't working from a spec script or anything like that. Like I, I plotted these. I plotted a sequence and I drew five pages. That's good. Um, yeah, but they were like it was it was crazy. Like I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> like, I drew them all on like eight by ten printing paper. 
and it was all in like you know graphite pencil and so on like I thought I was doing like the best job and I can look back on them now and say like just I didn't know what I was doing right um, but I had you know like I had submitted stuff to heavy metal I had submitted stuff to dark horse at that you know in, in at that time a lot of these places were still taking open submissions um, and uh, so I, I have a couple I have a you know I have a letter from dark horse saying like thank you but no thank you I have a letter from from heavy metal saying the same thing mm-hmm. um, and I love them yeah but um, Marvel actually told you what to work on this time yeah I, like I think it was still a form letter mm-hmm. um, but they they gave actual constructive things to like you know this is what constant you know this is the type of art that goes into a Marvel comic and you know dynamism and all that kind of stuff um, but um, shit just uh like from submitting like in high school and stuff and not really knowing what you were gonna do oh right yeah it would be about art but not so i had in the back of my head i had that it would be comics but um it wasn't you know like i i didn't it didn't seem like the most uh sensible application for art and so um when i was in when i was in 12th grade my dad took me to um like a, a, you know, an orientation at Sheridan College uh, in Oakville because they have a couple of really prestigious art programs, animation and illustration. So animation seemed like one way I could go. Um, that was a little more, you know, animation as a, as, a, as a path seems a little more definitive, you know, uh, whereas illustration can branch out into many other, many things. Um, and so I was still, you know, I had the, had the orientation. I was still kind of undecided. Um, and so I took a couple years to work full-time and in that time like I you know I worked retail I worked warehouse jobs and um, it wasn't until I was working in a grocery warehouse here in Mississauga and um, it was just like the most it was you know a miserable time like I hated it and I hated the job um, everybody there was incredibly unfriendly it was made an especially unfriendly place because their union had collapsed oh, man. yeah their, their union had had folded and the whole enterprise was being taken out um, I think to Aurora and it was being like you know the uh, being it was going to be staffed by people from like temp agencies and stuff like that like the whole structure had changed and so you know, like I was more or less a scab that they brought on to work until the place closed. Wow. So there wasn't a lot of, you know, warmth for me. Like people were kind of, you know, like a lot of the guys who were there for years and years were disgruntled because like they were going to be out of a job within a year. Yep. Uh, so they were unhappy about that. And then they liked the people who came, you know, the new people even less. Um, and, um, and so I was just, you know, there was nothing to like about this job. And because it certainly wasn't a job where there was a future because I had, a, you know, it had an end date. Um, and so, like, there wasn't anything to really invest. I was literally just killing time. And I think that working that job helped me realize, like, you know, I was just in life killing time. Um, and that if I wanted to do something meaningful with my art, like I had said I wanted to out loud. <laughs> to people, uh, you know, um, that I should just go for it. So when that job finished, um, I just uh, decided to seek out a job drawing comics, if I could find one, and um, and throw myself into it. So did you, did you find that job? Yeah. I, um, I, 
wasn't really so I, I the only way that I could think of finding a job in comics was like the way that I would go about finding any job which was like one ads uh, like monster the job website uh, I wound up finding a comics gig off Craigslist and um, that wound up you know that one thing led to other things which you know I just climbed the ladder wow but so Craigslist yeah do you remember the ad I I, I mean not verbatim but no. it was um, it was a nice fellow named uh, Mark Morgenstern who uh, is a director and um, he was looking for somebody to help like an illustrator to adapt a, a short or I don't think it was a feature film of his so like a low budget horror movie that he wanted to repurpose as a graphic novel and he needed an artist for it and um, I was looking for to cut my teeth on like anything and so I went from maybe drawing like eight 12 interior sequential pages in my life to then drawing like 128. Oh. And um, were you, you weren't like trained or anything, were you? Like there was no, was there like, did you go to school for art or anything like that? At that point I had done a year at Sheridan in their art fundamentals. Okay. Um, and so like I had gone to school for a year, uh, like I had applied to their illustration program. I didn't pass the portfolio evaluation. Um, and so it was recommended to me to take Art Fundies, and Art Fundamentals is like a portfolio builder. So many people who go to Art Fundamentals go on to animation or illustration. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm a like, like I'm a pretty lousy student. So when I got in, I felt like you know Art Fundamentals isn't a prerequisite for anything, and it's just a portfolio. I, I treated it as just like a means to an end. Right. So it's like all I got to do in my mind, all I had to do was build an a, a good portfolio and then it didn't matter if I did assignments or even attended class so I spent a lot of my time like you know running up my credit card at taverns and whatnot um, and so I, I was awful and so uh, when it came time to reapply again to illustration like I passed my portfolio um, ex- you know uh, evaluation but my grades were so terrible that my counselor was like, you know, we're accepting you, but on the condition that you pull all your grades up. And this was like a strike year. And I, at the time I was told this, I had like maybe two months to turn everything around in like five courses. Whoa. So I just like, you know, never went back to school. Okay. Was like, I totally, I just, I blew the entire thing off. Right. Um, so uh, something I'm not proud of and certainly wouldn't recommend. But That's I, a lot of money to blow off right like it costs money to go there doesn't it oh it absolutely costs yeah, money yeah. I'm an idiot yeah. <laughs> that was really stupid um so but anyways when I had I had learned the fundamentals of art as the as the program promised so when I got the, when I eventually um got this job to draw this was I think I flamed out of art school in 2005 no 2006 I flamed out of art school and it wasn't until 2008 that I found this other this comic job um, and that was really kind of the start of my life, you know, as it is now, because I took that, I took that gig and I spent, you know, 2008 really like, you know, the tail end of 2008 and most of 2009 drawing it. And, um, you know, and during that period of time, my partner and I, like she got pregnant with our first child. And so, you know, the book that we made came out at Fan Expo of that year, and then a month later, my, my kid was born. And what book was this? It was called The Vampire Conspiracy. Okay. Um, it was kind of like, 
uh, you know, a bunch of a bunch of total strangers. They wake up in a labyrinth. Um, they don't know how they got there, why they're there, and the labyrinth is populated with vampires. So they're being chased from one area of the labyrinth to the next, and there are clues along the way that reveal that they're all linked somehow. Wow. You know? Um, it's like a vampire escape room or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, that book came out that year, and um, my kid was born, and then I was pretty much like, you know, I had to just keep going because suddenly, like, I had a family to support. Yeah, so like I got to like, do this. Yeah. I got to. Yeah, I had yeah. to. I had to make it work. Yeah, that's what I'm. What I'm in now. My my wife is pregnant. We're expecting oh, a kid in May. So. Uh, and I've been a freelance journalist for a long time, but now it's like I really have to pull up how much money I can make every yeah. month and stuff. Yeah, so. the pressure's on. For yeah, <laughs> exactly. I exactly. know exactly where you're coming exactly. from. Exactly. So, um, didn't you also work with uh, Fred Kennedy early on on stuff that he wanted to yeah. pursue in comics? After the vampire conspiracy, I was... Um, <clears throat> so after that, after that book came out at Fan Expo, Mark and I did... Um, you know, a few conventions together to, to sell the book. And um, I think we did a few Toronto ones. And we did, uh, I remember there was one year where like Wizard came to Toronto. And so we did that. Um, I remember that show and like nobody attended, like it, barely it, anybody attended. It was, it was I, had, I enjoyed my time there, but it was not a good show. Right. Um, but um, yeah, so, but I mean, like apart from that, I had all these copies of this book that I was trying to get into stores. And so, you know, that, uh, you know, the following spring, summer, I was, the, you know, that book came out. I was going around and, um, you know, uh, cold calling uh, comic book shops uh, to, you know, take the book on consignment. I was driving to places within the GTA to, uh, you know, see if they would carry it and so on. And, um, you know, it was like not a great time. And I wasn't, I didn't, you know, apart from, apart from drawing, you know, comics, I didn't have a job at that point. And so, you know, with the, you know, Tesh at home with our, with our baby girl, uh, it was, you know, again, like the pressure was on to, to do something, to make a move and, and. And, yeah, and, and your partner's sort of going, hey, come on. No, actually, uh, no? Tesh uh, has been and remains, she's always been incredibly supportive okay, cool. of, of, of my of my career. So I had that going for me. Okay, cool. Um, you know, parents, different story. Uh, but, um, you know, uh, she, she gave me all the support in the world. And uh, so during that time, um, I had... I, I had met uh, Ty Templeton, and um, he, you know, he was one of the first people to uh, review my portfolio and look at my art as I was drawing the Vampire Conspiracy, you know, that previous year. And so he was starting a, um, he was either starting or teaching a, uh, a workshop on how to make comics. Yeah, his boot camp sort of thing. Yep, it wasn't called that then. Uh, it was the early iteration of that. And so he recommended I take it, and I did, and I got a lot out of it. But what helped me was, as I was taking these workshops, I was actively making comics with 
uh, were the two people, and one of them being Fred Kennedy. Fred Kennedy, I should mention, for those who don't live in Toronto, is like basically like a radio personality and, and DJ guy, fearless Fred Kennedy. Fearless Fred. Yeah, yeah. so uh, that's how people in, in Toronto know him, but yeah. if you don't know him, you can sort of find him on the radio. Yeah, so I, I crossed paths with him because as I was driving around, um, you know, trying to you know have people either buy my book or carry it in their store... Um, Fred was new to Toronto that year. Like he had just at the time, he, like he was on Edge One Hundred Two at that point in time, and he was new to Toronto. And um, so I was listening to him the whole time I was driving. And um, I think one, like I was in traffic, and I heard him say how he liked comics and was talking about the Green Lantern or whatever. And I got this light bulb, like you know, if I reach out to this Fred guy and ask him to look at my book, maybe he'll talk about my book. Maybe people will want to buy my book, and so on. So I wrote him an email, and to my surprise, he wrote me back asking if I'd want to make a comic with him. He was like, you know, I wrote back explaining that he had a few story ideas. He was actually, like, you know, actively trying to get projects off the ground. He liked what I showed him, and, you know, and so I met him, and we wound up making our own book together called Tutan, or Tutan. Um, uh, we did three uh, trade paperbacks of that Um basically about a Teutonic knight um, who, you know, during, I think, uh, the Third Crusades and, um, and uh, in the Baltics. And uh, he runs afoul of some Lithuanian gods. And uh, so we did three books of, of that. And, wow. um, yeah, so we, you know, uh, three, four years uh, we were working together. Nice. It, it, he has some really intricate ideas he's really into history and stuff so he's a big history guy yeah, yeah. uh he he definitely thinks big as far as his stories are concerned i mean i mean he thinks big not to not to say he thinks small in every other way <laughs> fred's a very smart guy um but yeah he likes he you know he likes his epics and yeah. uh, he likes his historical stuff and um so i i you know i got to partner up with him on one cool that's awesome and the working experience was really good Fred, yeah, Fred was, I mean, and he still is, he's one of the, he's just one of the coolest people that I know, and in the time that I, I mean, we're very good friends, I consider him a brother of mine, and, um, but I mean, like, when we're working together, he was paying me what he could to draw it, and so a lot of, you know, like, I was able to pay bills and contribute to my, because I certainly wasn't the breadwinner at this time, but I was, you know, you know, I was putting food on my table because Fred was paying me to draw this comic. And um, anytime I had a problem, uh, whether it was like, you know, getting the work done or just something in my life, like he was, you know, a shoulder to cry on. He was, you know, a lot of, you know, we leaned on each other, you know, many, many times and we shared a lot of like ups and downs. So... You know, he's he's uh, he's a, Fred's somebody who's very near and dear to me, and the whole time that we were working together, I, I, I think anybody who collaborates with Fred is a very lucky person. That's excellent, man. I uh, he also has his own podcast, uh, Issue Zero. It, yeah, it, it it was Issue Zero, and I think it's coming back, or it is. It is. Back. It is back. Yeah, I've listened to a few. It's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So check that out if you're into speed <laughs> uh, Also, so then after working with him, what was your what was your next step? Like when did your, you know, because for me it was like 
for me, I think I was first exposed to you with, like, the violent, but I know that things happened sort of before that also, right? Yeah, like, I, there were a few things uh, after working, you know, like, there's, there were a lot of things happening simultaneously, so as I was drawing Tootin' with Fred, um, you know, we were, we had always planned to do three books of that, and, um, and then, you know, as I was nearing the end of that, I felt like, I felt the need to uh, figure out what was going to happen next because um, I had kind of fallen, you know, I, I, I didn't want to just keep falling into things. Um, like I, I wanted to try and take some control over where my life was headed, mm-hmm. um, which is usually the first step to losing control. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, I was, you know, I'm always concerned about what's going to be next, especially as I near the end of something. Um, and I'm only now getting better about, you know, uh, uh, you know, um, planning ahead. Right. Mm-hmm. But um, back then, I, I, you know, to working on your own series is so engrossing that it's a little hard to try and plant seeds, for, you know, for the next season. Right. So after doing that, I, um, I started to, you know, he and I were doing like Grand Expo together here in Toronto we had gone to uh, C2E2 in Chicago together to kind of, you know, try and make some noise over the, in the States with our book. But, um, you know, I would, over the course of doing that book with Fred, like I kind of got, you know, I became part of the Toronto comic scene. Right. So I was meeting a lot of people who were, you know, at my level, up and comers, people who, you know, some, some people who are now like big deals. And, um, and so I, you know, I ensconced myself there and, um, you know, met a lot of people who were interested in doing stuff with me. So I, you know, I who met, was, who was the friend group? Uh, I mean, I was pals with, um, uh, guys like Phil McClory and, and Brian Avenue and they together did a few really cool, um, anthologies, uh, like, you know, basically monstrosity and yeah, two monstrosity books, horror in the West, uh, it's funny because I, you know, like there's some, uh, there's a kind of a, a, a wealth of Toronto anthologies now, but um, I kind of think I, I think that all of the books now owe a little bit to what Phil and Brian did back then, because they were the first guys that I knew of um, that were pooling Toronto talent to make you know an anthology book, and um, and I remember. You know, it started with horror in the West, and then they got a little bit bigger with Monstrosity. And uh, you know, Monstrosity was the first volume of Monstrosity was my first exposure to James Edward Clark, who is like you know a, a hidden gem, I think, in in Toronto. Totally. And um, and then you know they only got bigger with the second book. They got you know James Stoku did a cover for for volume two, and there was just I I remember when they were putting together volume two, every you know. You know, every dude that I that I knew was trying to get into that book. Right. Um, and so, I think a lot of the anthologies now uh, owe a little bit of credit to Monstrosity uh, and, and Phil and Brian. But um, at any rate, moving on, um, I got you know I uh, the, I participated in a sketch uh, vlog, I guess. Uh, I fucking forget the name of it. And um, I think spitballing comics okay. is what it was called, but it was basically like we would, you know, it was a collective of artists that would 
um, you know, we would put out a weekly theme or I think it became like a monthly theme at a certain point. Uh, and we would all just draw a piece according to the theme and we would post it on this blog. And it was designed to, you know, get us all some, you know, get eyes on our art, basically. Yeah, kind of like what From a Hat was doing when they were From a Hat. Yes. So um, so we were doing that. I was a late addition to, to them. There, A lot of the people in spitballing were well acquainted and friends before I came on board. But I got on board and became acquainted with, you know, like David Cutler. I think it was David Cutler who invited me to join spitballing. Um, Selena Goulding uh, and... Um, forget who else but you know i wound up becoming really good friends with uh, michael walsh and um so as we were posting i think we were a couple people who were posting pretty regularly and i was seeing his art quite often and was really impressed by it and um you know that feeling wound up being mutual and so we met the first time at a fan expo and uh we just we got along like i don't make a lot of friends I'm, i'm at that I think having a having a kid in my mid twenties um, killed my ability to socialize and make friends very easily. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, because like at that time, a lot of my friends were you know maybe thinking about getting married, certainly not having children, and so starting a family left me feeling very isolated. And so it was became a it became a rare thing for me to make like to just click with somebody and become good friends and. That happened with Michael, and um, so we just we got along famously. And uh, that same show, I met Ed Brisson, and we just had a nice weekend together. Uh, you know, meeting, getting acquainted, um, looking at each other's work, and having like an instant respect for it, and just I guess kind of feeling like this person is at my level or I'm at their level. Right. There was some comfortability there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think at that time Ed had just been doing a murder book, but uh, Michael and Ed were about to hit it big because they had done a book at Image, or uh, they had a book at Image coming out um, called Comeback. Yeah. Yeah, it was a time travel crime book. And um, so they were, I, I, you know, became friends with them just before the book came out. It was coming out. And, um, and so Comeback came out. That kind of catapulted the two of them into the into the comic scene, in, like in the mainstream. Mm-hmm. And um, I've just, you know, in a way, I've been kind of riding Michael's coattails ever since. <laughs> you know, so like I, you know, he and I remained friends. And so the more work, you know, in those days, the more work he got, um, you know, I, he, he, the busier he got, the more involved. You know, he let me be with what he was doing. So. Right, pass you on some stuff, or not necessarily pass me him. on some stuff, but um, like he he asked me to ink him on uh, on a few pages for one thing, and then that led me to inking him for an entire thing on another thing. So um, he did an issue of Zero, uh, written and created by Alish Cott at Image, and um, every issue was by a different artist. And he did the first one, but he was doing something else that he felt like he could have somebody ink and um he told me that he liked my he felt comfortable with me inking him and so you know i did a few pages in there and so you know when i say that a lot of things were happening simultaneously like i by inking part of zero i got on elish cott's radar and then he and i would later go and work together um and then by inking mike on that particular issue um he had me come and 
ink him on uh, a crossover at IDW with X-Files and Ninja Turtles that Ed was writing and um, uh, I want to say Jordi Belair was coloring because Jordi had colored them on Comeback. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, in a sense, that book was like a little comeback reunion plus me. Yeah, and um, so I had a you know I had a fun time um, working you know doing inks on that, and um, I always tell aspiring artists you know if you pencil or an inker is that you learn a lot by inking other people as as, as well as yourself, and so at that point I was inking you know I was inking Mike occasionally I had inked um, a bunch of stuff that uh, Andy Belanger had done. And I had done some inking on, um, oh, I, forget, I forget his name, but I did some inking on a boom book, uh, Dawn on the Planet of the Apes. Um, anyhow. Um, yeah, so you were like learning. I was learning a lot as I was doing. Yeah, so you said like, you know, it's good for aspiring artists to ink other people because you learn a lot. What do you learn? Like panel construction, like you where kind characters of, are, that sort of thing? You get, um, you. I mean, at least I did, like I kind of, uh, seeing their pencils, I, you know, and how they draw, like a, you get a little window into how they think and how they're composing the scene. Right. And um, they're doing, they're, you know, they're, they're putting like, cause every line on a page is information. And so they're putting in things that it might not have occurred to me to put in. Or right. They're drawing things in a way that it just wouldn't have occurred to me to draw. And um, so having to ink that, like, you know, you're, you're ex it's exposing you to another way of thinking and another way of drawing. And you, you know, you uh, absorb some of that. And that goes into what you're, what you're yeah. doing. Everything, yeah, everything informs what you do. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, you know, I really benefited from that. And um, Dan McDade was the, <laughs> was the other guy that I inked. Okay. Um, On Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Um, yeah, Dan McDade's pretty wonderful. Nice. Um, anyhow, but it was you know through doing that one thing at the you know at IDW that got me some some cover work on Ninja Turtles, and then and then so that's you know like I said a lot of things were happening simultaneously and everything it, leads into the next thing. Yeah, there was a lot of bleed, and um, but it all kind of happened from you know like I was you know I by by just doing as much as I could and you know doing as much networking as I could within the Toronto scene and um, and then later uh, you know making my way over to uh, shows in the States so um, it was about you know I think around that time or afterward that I started doing American conventions pretty regularly and so I went to Emerald City uh, Comic Con in Seattle and um, you know that was kind of a uh, you know it was kind of like entering a world stage I was meeting a lot of um, not just like comic creators that don't really come to Toronto, but also, you know, editors and publishers that don't really have a presence at Toronto Fan Expo. So it was my chance to, you know, really, uh, you know, insert myself into the mainstream comics world, right. um, into that market. So, um, yeah, so I, I, I guess what I'm saying is like, you know, I, by the time the, you know, by by the group of friends that I was making, and we were all doing stuff together. Like I, you know, it, you know doors were opening um, all over the place. And you were you were doing a lot of like uh, I guess image stuff and that sort of thing. But when when aspiring artists think about breaking in, what they're really saying is, I want to work for like DC and Marvel, right? Yeah. A lot of the time. So how did you? 
get there? How did you get to the big two? Because that eventually happened. And it always seems like, and this is sort of unfortunate, that like people aren't really legit uh, you know, in the minds of a fan until yeah. they are like, oh, DC Marvel, suddenly you're like a popular artist kind of thing. Yeah, it's, it, yeah. there is this attitude where it's like, I can pay attention to you now. Right, exactly. Um, and I, you know, like I don't, you know, I, I don't really have anything insightful to say about that mentality. Like I, it's a phenomenon that exists. Mm-hmm. Um, it's probably not good that it exists. No. Um, but it's, it's there and, um, uh, so I don't really, like I, you know, like I had known Ed a bit and, um, we were trying to pitch something together, which would later become the violent. Yeah. But, um, so after doing, you know, I had done Teuton, I had done, um, a little bit of like a little bit of work on, like I had, you know, I had a few credits under my belt with Zero and this, uh, Ninja Turtles X-Files crossover. Yeah, I do. And a few covers. Mm-hmm. So... You know, I had, you know, I had been building some momentum, and so, um, and I had gone to Emerald City and met a lot of creators, like in particular writers who were interested in doing with me because doing stuff with me, because um, I was, you know, like I was a, I was a new artist on the scene, and you know, there was a lot of up and coming writers, who, you know, like need fresh blood, right? And um, so I was doing, I think, like I was pitching with five different writers, like all really good writers who. Mm-hmm. Um, are pretty cool and um, one of them happened to be Ed and so I was in a position where you know I was working on all these things and I was just waiting for to you know waiting to see what would be the first thing to take and that wound up being the violent and um, so you know Ed and I get the violent green lit um, uh, an image gave it us you know gave it a start date of like a full year later um, so you know uh, that's the kind of the crummy thing about I won't say crummy, but like you know, I, 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 having a book at Image can kind of be a double-edged sword, because there's no real you know there's no infrastructure. You're not getting a page rate. Very few people get an advance. So when you get a book greenlit, you got to make the book, and you don't make any money on it until the book comes out. And right. Then, even then, you don't know how much money you're going to make off of it. So before any of that happens, you got to put all of this work into making your book. Uh, you know for free and so if you don't have any kind of you know income coming in it can be really hard so even though that I even though we had this image book greenlit I still needed to find a way to earn and um, you know as luck would have it uh, Alish Cott was doing a book at Valiant and um, you know he had my name on a shortlist and Valiant reached out to me to see if I would draw it that book wound up being Dead Drop nice yeah and so I drew Dead Drop um, as a means to kind of, you know, like... Supplement the violence. Not as... I wouldn't say as a means, because it was just a thrill and an exciting thing in and of itself to have my own miniseries at a publisher. But, yes, it was... uh, I was always... I was, you know, it was uh, great. I get to do this book, which will hopefully get more eyes on the next thing I do, and then obviously support myself as I'm doing it. Um... And so I knew, I knew, so that was maybe like one of the most um, comfortable times I had in those early days, which was like, I knew I had at least two things to do. Right. Um, And so, you know, I uh, got a lot of love from Valiant fans and Valiant to this day. I still have a really terrific relationship with Valiant. And so I was able to get a lot of eyes on me at that time. And, um, 
and uh, which I think followed us to the violent. And um, so we did that book, um, which was incredible. Like, and it wasn't for for an image book. It wasn't what they were putting out. Like, like violent is very dark. Uh, yeah, you know it. it it's gritty. It's it's set in Vancouver, like the downtown east side. So yeah. it doesn't seem like your traditional image book in terms of like a saga or you know what they were what they were putting out at that at that point, right? Yeah, like it was a crime. It was a crime comic, and there are crime comics around, but ours wasn't. It wasn't pulpy. It wasn't you know. It wasn't. There was no clandestine um, criminal organizations or anything like that. It was a real, you know, story out of the headlines type book. And, um, you know, I know that it didn't set the world on fire, but, uh, you know, it was a very, for me, like it, you know, for I, both Ed and I, it was a very, you know, personal story and it felt um, good to tell. Mm -hmm. And the main character, like, screws up. Like, there's no... You know, it's a book there's about, no redemption. It's a book about people screwing up. Right. It's a book about people falling through the cracks of, our society mm -hmm. and um and how you know like a, a you know in part it's you know it helps hopefully you know uh, as a reader you come away feeling empathetic to people that you might dismiss as being like recidivists or or you know people who are trying to get their life on track mm -hmm. and not getting it right um victims of circumstance victims of, i mean yeah there's i mean victims of circumstance the Systems where the odds are stacked against people, mm -hmm. um, and uh, so you know that book had all of those things, and and, it, and, um, and so I felt you know really proud to to share that story in a place, at a time and place where I didn't think there was anything else like it. But also, didn't it like it launched really well? But then didn't the subsequent issues sort of get delayed <laughs> in terms of getting it put out? Um, yeah, I mean, like, we, I think we had a pretty good reception on the first issue. Um, I remember, I, I mean, there was some snafu where, you know, uh, one of our issues didn't get solicited, and so we had to double ship in a month. And I mean, uh, for, a, you know, a, a creator-owned book, like, any hiccup can be detrimental. Right. Um, but, I mean, you know, even before that, like, we weren't, you know, we weren't, t I think we had a lot of people who were waiting for the trade, because um, I know when the trade came out, we got a lot of compliments on the book. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, like, you know, I think we were, uh, you know, there was just not enough people buying the book, basically, as right. it was coming out mm -hmm. to justify more. But we, Ed and I certainly had more stories that we wanted to tell and still might. So Nice. So it might continue. Yeah, we've talked about it. Nice. Because yeah. there's a lot of characters in that world that you you meet and you could go into into their lives too yeah our, kind of our idea for the violent overall like long term would be as an anthology and so this was just before anthology shows became in vogue um and so we you know like uh we had uh our first story was going to be about this one family and then there'd be uh you know the next story would take place um a few years, I mean, many years before, and there might be some bleed with, you know, with recurring characters, but the story itself would be its own thing, but, you know, we would be, it would still be within, you know, um, you know it, would, it would be within the, the real world. Um, right. 
Mm -hmm. the, just the world that we were creating. Yeah, Vancouver's down on each side, and you know stuff that really Canada. exists. Yeah. Okay, throughout Canada. Yeah. So yeah. something like I, you know, like as a reference, like something that Elmore Leonard did, right? Right. So. Cool. Awesome. So, from that, is that how you got into Marvel and that oh. sort of stuff? Uh, I, you know, we had, although, you know, the violin didn't set the world on fire with sales or anything like that. I think that people who saw it were impressed by the work that we did. And so once the violent was over and I kind of put out feelers to find, to new, to, you know, to find new work and, um, and, uh, uh, as the, you know, as the violent was finishing, um, I got scooped up by Marvel to work on rocket. Mm -hmm. And I think that it was just, um, you know, luck of the draw, because I think that they had, they were, I don't know, uh, you know, they were trying to make Rocket happen, uh, the Rocket Raccoon miniseries. So Rocket would be, they had this book that Al Ewing was writing, where Rocket was doing his own thing, and Al's vision for it would be, you know, like hard-boiled crime noir. Right. And so, having just done the violent, I probably seemed like a, you know, a good fit for that. Um, uh but um, so they, you know, they they liked me for it, and I uh, I was excited. You know, I probably would have said yes to anything that they offered me, um, but um, I was excited by this. Really, I of all the things, I was not expecting Rocket Raccoon, but they told me the 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 spin on the story, and it was so novel that I, um, you know, like I. I got excited apart from just working on uh, working for Marvel and having like you know my first work with Marvel being like my own number one series and that kind of thing right um, just the I had known that Al was a was a you know an interesting writer on the rise and um, and from what I was learning about the book it was all just it was super cool and so I, I sunk my teeth right into it right like Rocket gets to like put a crew together. There's like a whole yeah. So it's, yeah, yeah. It's Rocket on his own, and um, he runs into an old flame of his who's in trouble, and she asks for his help to settle the score with um, this this corporation that's uh, that's threatening her home world, and so to help her out, um, you know, Rocket puts together uh, a crew and, and they plan a heist and you know like hijinks ensue that's awesome you get to do like the oceans 11 of guardians of the galaxy sort of stuff yeah basically yeah um and you know rocket's in a suit the whole time so he's not in you know he's not in like a you know his space studs or anything like that um it's very much it was it was a it was a take on rocket that hadn't been seen before mm -hmm. um and the way the book was structured was unlike anything that I think was on stands at the time. That's awesome. So when you're working for like an existing established character, you have to work within at least continuity or at least the what's already been established about that character. Yeah. Is it is it more difficult than having like your own creator property like the violin or that sort of thing? Like what are the challenges of working for the big a big corporation like Marvel when when you're an artist? Well, putting making any book is challenging. Uh, the you just you know the challenges change, I guess, on what you're working on. And right. So, um, you know, with Rocket, things were, I think, pretty low stakes, all things considered. Like, I don't think, um, I don't think anybody had high expectations of a Rocket comic, and I, there had just been a Rocket book before ours. 
um, written by Matt Rosenberg, um, that you know had Rocket grounded on Earth, mm-hmm. and so there was an event that the Guardians came to Earth and their ship. I don't know, like needed like a tune-up or something, and so they were they were all stuck on Earth for a bit. So Matt told this story about Rocket in New York. You know, it was dead, like it was a fish out of water tale. Right. Um, Chip did the Star Lord book around the same around the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where he was stuck on Earth. Yeah. yeah. So I think like the subtitle for that was grounded. Right. And um, but you know, Rocket got himself back up into space, which kicked into our story, and we dropped the raccoon. It was just Rocket and. Um, and uh, so when I came aboard, there really weren't any, uh, the, you know, there weren't too many notes. Um, you know, there wasn't anything. We were telling a story that was well with outside, like any big events going on. Um, we didn't have the characters, like our, you know, our supporting characters were characters that weren't being used elsewhere. So there were no real, you know, um, we, we weren't crossing any wires with anybody. Uh, in the fourth issue, Deadpool makes a cameo, and um, and like that didn't pose a problem. It was just a little, you know, it was it was a little funny. I think at, this was at a time where they were trying to just you know have Deadpool appear in as many books across their line as possible. Because um, I remember being asked, Al asked me at a, at a New York Comic Con, you know, who I would want to guest appear. Um, in Rocket and I was thinking in terms of Cosmic Marvel and I was like oh man there's all these cool people and so I listed off a few and he was like okay and then I found out later it'd be Deadpool (laughs) 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 which I didn't like I didn't understand in the end I didn't need to understand it and it wound up being probably like my favorite issue to draw yeah of course um, because it was it was very fun but no I mean working on Rocket was was uh, it was it was good and then you know like we if the sales were there, I think they would have kept it going, but they weren't, and which didn't really come as a surprise. And so we uh, finished it off at six issues, and um, and at that point in time, like I, um, uh, one of my editors on Rocket had moved over to the X offices, and um, they were trying to put together a few X books, and one of them being the Mutants that Matt was writing. And by this point in time, like I was pretty well acquainted with Matt, and he had a respect for me, and like I a genuine fan of his writing and so yeah four um, kids walking out of a bank is amazing so four kids um yeah. we can never go home um yeah so uh you know just in just as a personality he was somebody that i would love to that i wanted to work with because he just he was funny he was um you know very kind and um he's always got an interesting he's a you know i like i think that he's a really good storyteller so the prospect of working with him was really exciting getting to do an X book was really exciting but that's it was I found that on New Mutants there was more fingerprints more things to be wary of um, right they were doing like a, the movie uh, I think at that time was being yeah, made they were gonna, it's two two years delayed right so yeah it was yeah this was 2017 right so or 2018 rather but um, yeah so I think it was I don't think that it wasn't by design that the book would come out by the movie, but I think, you know, if the movie helped the book, that would be great. Right. But um, at any rate, uh, the movie got pushed back, and it didn't really hurt our book any. Um, But, um, you know, because, like, I, all the fans, like, X fans that I encountered were really supportive and still are of of the stuff I did on that book. And um, so I, 
you know, but I mean, I think what I'm saying is like whenever you're working on anything X related, there's a lot more to be because it's, you know, all these characters are, there's just, I think, a lot more going on in that part of the Marvel Universe. Right. There's yeah. a deeper history. and there, Yeah, there's, I mean, like, yeah, there's certainly a deeper history and, and canon that you've got to be aware of and respect, but also there's more moving parts. So, you know, characters that in our book might be appearing and also another book and that kind of thing. And right. So, Anything you do in your title reverberates across the line, mm-hmm. so um, there was you know, more to be more to be aware of. So, did you have to do more research? Did you have to like be more consistent in terms of how you I, characterize people? No, if anything, I got to do. I took some liberties with the characters. Oh, okay. And so I did some things with Ileana Rasputin that were very different in terms of like how she, in terms of her appearance, um, uh, you know, and, and, and uh, as well as like. You know, Rain, like in Spain, and in Richter, and and so on. Like I, I was happy. You know, like I got, I, I was able to push. You know, um, how they were presented. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the strongest example of that is Magic uh, Ileana, and um, so I was able to give her a, a look that was distinct to the book. Um, it was also I got to draw, you know, like uniforms for the team, which is like pretty unreal. Um, so I, you know, it's, it's, I have a, you know, it's cool to think that I have some X uniforms that are under my name. Yeah. You get to put your own stamp on, yeah. on the team. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, in terms of like that, it wasn't too restrictive. Um, it was just in, uh, I mean, I didn't have to do a ton of research about the characters and stuff. Like I was, you know, acquainted with, with most of the team. There were certainly characters that I knew like a little less about, mm. um, but you know that's why you have editors. So, yeah. um, but um, you know, like just in terms, I think of like on the script level, there was uh, challenges in telling that story. Right, and with New Mutants, everybody goes back to like Demon Bear and Bill Sienkiewicz as sort of the standard. So yeah. I'm sure you had to like read that if you hadn't already. And yeah, stuff. no, I was I was familiar with that with that work, and mm-hmm. um, but I didn't like what we were. Nothing we were doing was bold into any of that. Right. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Um, but yeah, so like I. Uh, then the movie got delayed, uh, what's it seemed inevitably, uh, and um, uh, so I, you know, like I don't really think that had an impact on our book, but it certainly, you know, in a way it was kind of good because the book was now just its own thing. Right. There was not that pressure of like. Yeah, I think like it has lo- performed so that the movie, like because of the movie. And I stuff. wouldn't say that there was pressure to perform, yeah. but there is like there is cynicism on the part of readers. Mm-hmm when they see a book timed with a movie right and they kind of treat it like well this book doesn't like they you know they're i think they're sin- they're, they're skeptical as to whether a book quote-unquote matters right because it's they might deem it just like you know an unofficial tie-in or a yeah. in or like a marketing ploy yeah 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 so i think that when people when you know when they catch that scent they're less likely to invest in it yeah so but I mean, like we were telling a story that was very much its own thing. Right. So in a way, you got lucky because you didn't have the I think so the marketing stink of, <laughs> of the movie. Yeah, that's, that's I guess. stench. Of, <laughs> yeah, that stench of coordination. Yeah, exactly. Um, but that being said, we're recording this when the New Mutants second trailer. Uh, has actually come out like a few days ago. Yeah. Have you seen it? What do yeah. you think of it? Uh, it's kind of a weird thing because Disney has decided to put it out and it used to be a Fox thing and they just sort of acquired it in the Fox-Disney merger. So they, I think, are putting their own stamp on the trailer. Like they recut it. They did the second trailer. What did you, what do you think? I've watched it twice. 
um, once just on my own and once with my daughter. It scared my daughter. She's 10, and um, she likes... She's liked all of the X-Men movies. She's, she likes X-Men. And so um, she, I think she would say she appreciates that it's an X-Men movie, but she thinks that it might be too scary for her to see in theaters. Um, no, I think it looks cool. Uh, do you I, like the horror direction? Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I do. I um, Our book had a horror tint to it initially, and um, so I, I remember there, there was that comparison when we started it out, but... Um, I think it works, yeah. and I think it sets you know these characters apart from, you know, like it doesn't feel like you know X Men two point like It right. definitely feels like a they're exploring a different corner of that universe, and um, I like movies like that. It also just feels like it also feels like you can you know, a movie that you can take and leave on its own, which I think is probably really healthy for comic book movies right now. Do you think the characters in the movie are enough on model for you like are they close enough to so like what i did to or the char- general? no to like the characters that you know like i know that there's a scene with Ilya rasputin and the and the soul sword and that yeah. sort of thing. do they look like who you would want them to look like do you feel like yeah you know i'm close I, enough to who the characters are yeah I, okay. I do i um you know like they're young they look like kids um you know uh the actress who like I really loved in The Witch, can't remember her name, but um, you know I think that she's a great cast for Liana. Um, Maisie Williams as Rain seems like a really good fit. I think that's as far as I uh, can. That's as far as I can place the cast members. Right. I don't think I've seen much of them in anything else. Right. Um, I don't know a lot about the story. Um, I don't know. I, I'm sure there are people who know behind the scenes stuff. I know nothing. I, I haven't really paid attention to any of it. But I mean, as a trailer, as, as something that I might want to see in a couple months, it, I, you know, it's I'm sold on it. Nice, cool. Yeah, I, I just want to see what they do. I want to see what the experiment of you know fusing superhero genre with horror genre yeah ends up being. Like so. I always, I always want movies to be good. Like mm-hmm. I never watch a trailer I, like I'm never rooting for something to be bad like I you know I like I I, I want the, you know I, I would like to I'd like a world populated with good movies right you know what I mean so like I hope it's a good one and yeah. there's a world where that's too esoteric like it's X-Men but it's horror X-Men people might not want to see it but I hope I hope people yeah like i it'd be you know if there were as many x books as if there are as many movies as there are x books then ideally there'd be like a flavor for everybody right yeah um and i like after after getting what i felt was kind of like the same type of x-men movie for many years um i i'm all for you know like you know uh putting x putting an x film in a different genre Right. So I think Logan proved that that can be done. Cool. So I want to talk about just two more things, and then I'll and then I'll let you go. Sure. Uh, let's talk about Punk Bombo because yeah. it's your it's sort of your latest uh, creator. Yeah, my most recent series. Yeah. Uh, Punk Mambo is a book from Valiant. Now, um, Punk Mambo is uh, kind of a you know she's been kind of a secondary character. She's this is her first solo book. Um, but she's appeared in the pages of Ninjak and Shadow Man, and she's kind of, I guess you could say, Valiant's answer to characters like John Constantine and, um, and the like. So um, she's, a, she's a 
punk rocker from the 70s who um, uh, becomes, you know, she, who comes into possession of, of voodoo powers, which um, makes her immortal, or at least she doesn't age, and, um, and it gives her, like, you know, cool powers. And so she's originally from, you know, the 70s London punk scene, gets transplanted to the bayou in New, of New Orleans, and where she... I guess acts as kind of an anti-hero mm -hmm. and um, you know getting into misadventures within the Marvel or the, I should say Valiant universe and um, and so that's where we find her we find her in, in, in the swamps of New Orleans and or sorry of Louisiana and um, this book is you know, sees her go from 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 there to uh, Haiti um, when her uh, you know when her when her mojo is stolen for lack of a better term but she has a spiritual companion that gets kidnapped by um, a figure from um, Haiti mythology Haiti lore Haitian lore um, and so she goes to Haiti to you know to get that back and pursue that and uh, you know winds up um, in a plot why you know winds up fighting these um, you know, these these figures from um, voodoo uh, mythology? Oh, cool! Yeah, I um do you do you identify with the Manchester punk scene of of, of the seventies? Because she's got the like the oi kind yeah. of attitude, right? Yeah, she does. Ah, uh, no, I'm pretty lame. Like I <laughs> I was I was never a punk kid growing up. I was never a part of any music scene, and I think even now like. My tastes are, um, I don't know, like pretty tame. Like I like a lot of, like a you know acoustic folk stuff, indie folk rock, and that kind of thing. And so, um, you know, Elliot Smith might be as punk as I get. Right. Uh, but um, what grabbed me about the story was that it was it was uh, about a you know about this you know English white girl who was in possession of voodoo powers and. So, um, you know, the story confronts that these are abilities that are not necessarily, um, you know, hers to have, you know what I mean? So, like, she's in a place, uh, um, like, she's, in, you know, she's, she finds herself in Haiti dealing with, like, a culture and religion that, um, you know, she uh, isn't necessarily entitled to. Right, there's a cultural appropriation aspect. Yeah, that's the term that I was okay. searching for. Okay. So there's yeah, so it deals with this. It deals with the appropriation of of, uh, of these powers that she, you know, that she didn't steal or anything like that. Or I guess like she came by them honestly. But um, you know, it kind of deals with the fact that this is that it's a, it's a white character with um, the voodoo powers. Right, and there's a lot of villains who don't want her to have it because they're from the original culture and that sort of stuff? The antagonist in the book is trying to, um, is somebody who doesn't have magical abilities of their own and is trying to harvest them. Oh. Um, and so it's kind of like, you know, like she's the other side of that coin. So you have this one character that I don't have magical abilities. I want them. I want to use them for nefarious purposes. And she's somebody who has magical abilities, um, and uh, but in the same way, like isn't like didn't you know she? Uh, uh, they don't necessarily belong to her, right? And so you know she kind of sees 
the ugly side of that, you know, uh, exhibited in his in the villain. Right, and of course the writer is Colin Bunn. Was yeah. it cool working with him? Yeah, it really was. Colin is a, a he's, he's a fabulous writer, um, and I really like the way he scripts his plots. And he's he was very generous in terms of like all that he gave me in his scripts. Um, and you know, he, the dude spins a good yarn. He knows his he knows his way around a horror book. That's awesome. And Jose Villarubia is sort of a legend. And he is a legend. So what was that like uh, working with him? I, mean, uh, I felt pretty darn lucky. Yeah. Um, I honestly didn't know, I you know like I didn't know what to expect. Um, like I saw his colors and I just like it was um, like it, it kind of floored me. Like I didn't. I it's weird to like. I I guess it's wrong to place an expectation on a collaborator. Um, you see their work before, and I guess like you have an idea of what it'll look like and. But I mean, like, you know, like every, I think anytime you work with an artist, it, a different artist that brings something different out of you. So, mm. which is to say when I saw him coloring on my stuff, it was, I was, I was glad to feel like it had an identity of its own. Like that's how he looks when he colors me. And so like it, it wasn't what I was expecting, but in a very delightful way. Do you have to feel like you, that your talent matches the coloring talent? Like when you work with somebody like, like him? I think that there are teams that that complement one another. Mm-hmm. I've seen penciler inkers colored in a way that I don't think flatters their lines, which isn't um, a drag on the colorist. Um, but I, I think there are sensibilities that don't necessarily come together well to my eye. Um, but and then, but I do think that you know, with the right people, you can make some beautiful music. Right, and you know, Jose Villarubia, like. He's colored like Alan Moore and like a yeah. lot of big names in comics, which is why we refer to him as a legend. So. Yeah, uh, dude was a huge get for the book. Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm very lucky. That's awesome. Uh, I wanted to talk about your your style. Mm-hmm. I'm always interested to hear how, how artists characterize their style, what they think of it, uh, how critical of themselves are they, like... What do you, who do you think you are stylistically in like the milieu of comics? I don't know, man. Like I, I maybe come from a certain school. Like I remember when I was starting out and, you know, uh, I think that one of the reasons why Walsh and I um, were drawn to each other is because we shared a lot of similarities. Like we were kind of brushy, kind of on the, you know, grimier side of inking. And, um, you know, we've, I think, you know, we've both certainly evolved since that point and have gone and, you know, you know, have, have branched off. Um, not that we're like, you know, very different now, but um, I think that I started out as being kind of like a, you know, brushier, having a dirtier ink style. Yeah, it was a little sketchy, sketchier. Yeah, yeah it was mm-hmm. frenetic and um, so on. And I'm trying to... I'm still trying to find my way. Like, I'm still trying to evolve. I certainly look at what other artists are doing that I really like and trying to maybe see if there's any of that in myself. Um, I'm not trying to necessarily, like, ape a style. Um, I can't, don't know who to credit with this quote, and it's a bastardized quote, but it's, um, you know, I, somebody told me once that when you try to copy an artist, all you inherit are their flaws. So when I look at art that I really like and admire and that speaks to me, I try to find what it is that they're doing well and why I like it and 
try to see if any of that exists within my ability as opposed to just trying to do what they do. Right. Because any time that I've done that, it's come out wrong. No, it's like, do I have it in me to do this or something like something like this? Yeah. Like Ty Templeton, I remember in his workshop saying that, again, I'm paraphrasing, but style is, style is, um, you know, as, as an artist, style is what happens when an artist tries to imitate life and fails. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, um, it's, you know, we're interpreting real life as best we can and that's how it comes out. Right. Um, and so, like, I'm still trying to grow. I don't know who I would say working I'm comparable to, but um, I know that I drew a certain way on Dead Drop and that changed a little bit for the violet. And then I brought some of that flavor to Rocket, but then when I got over on New Mutants, I was... I had to jump through a couple of hoops on that book because it had to both be horror and super heroic and oftentimes within the same page. And I feel like probably New Mutants was the book that maybe split me in two as far as like how I was drawing because I felt like I was trying to be a couple of different artists simultaneously. Right. Which I wouldn't recommend. Um, It wasn't the healthiest thing. And I think um, that was the book that left me questioning my ability more than any other project Um, and so uh, having done that and then uh, left me in a pretty vulnerable place and then working on Punk Mambo uh, really allowed me to find myself again I think that it was a story and subject matter that played to my strengths and brought me back home and um, and so you know going from there like I'm at a place where I'm trying to grow like you know knowing what works for me knowing what doesn't and then trying to grow from there so i the things that i'm working on now are like they're not strikingly different but they're um uh they're uh they're different enough to be to be challenging right and um, i'm excited about what i'll be doing in the next couple years nice so so what's next for you what other things are you working on that you can talk about I'm doing more Punk Mambo at Valiant. I'm doing a little bit of work at Marvel. I'm doing um, a couple of creator-owned things. Uh, One of them is with my good friend Fred Kennedy. Um, And I'll be doing uh, probably like a buttload of covers for some pretty cool books. That's awesome. And the... This idea of expanding the violin into another chapter is sort of always on the back, always on the back burner, right? So we've talked about it recently. Uh, there is a real possibility of it happening. Uh, it really just comes down to Ed writing scripts, right? And he's really busy too. He's doing a ton of stuff. Yeah, he's yeah. writing Ghost Rider and what have you. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, where can people find you on social media if they want to follow your uh, artistic journey? I am pretty active online. You can find me on the internets, uh, both on Instagram and Twitter. My handle is Adam T Gorham, G O R H A M. And uh, so, for you know all the arty goodness and pictures of my cat, you can follow me on Instagram. Um, and then for, you know, dumb things that my brain just barfs up, you can follow me on Twitter. That's awesome. Well, uh, it's been great having you, Adam. This has uh, been my conversation with Adam Gorham. Uh, pick up his new book, uh, Punk Mambo, and uh, we'll see you next time on Speech Bubble. Thank you. This has been Speech Bubble. See you in the future, friends. Never Sleeps Network.
This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. Speech Bubble on Never Sleeps Network is hosted by me, Aaron Broverman, and features audio editing from Armin Zoberi. It has announcements by Craig Mayhem and Sean Ward, with graphical assistance by Brittany Tice.